And it seemed like a weird thing to share with other people a message that I didn't get to share with my own family, with you guys. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Next week, we'll actually start a, se a series in the Old Testament prophet of Micah, looking at biblical justice through the eyes of Micah the prophet. It should be a great time. We'll start next Sunday. But for this week, I want to share with you what I was asked to speak on at the conference, which was the posture of the church in a hostile world. Okay, The posture of the church in a hostile world. And it's probably worth pointing out that the theme of the conference was the way of Jesus. And so I felt compelled to go looking for my answer to that statement, what is the posture of the church in a hostile world, to the life and teaching of Jesus himself. And so that brings us to Matthew chapter 10. Now, Matthew chapter 10 um, is when Jesus appoints and sends out the 12 disciples, also known as the 12 apostles. Okay, Here in Matthew, he sends them out, and it's a limited mission. He tells them where not to go. Don't go beyond the land of Israel. It's also, though, although it's limited, paradigmatic. It, it, I would suggest you, we've been looking at the Great Commission the last few weeks, this is the dry run of the Great Commission. Okay? This is a practice version in preparation while Jesus is still on earth for what we see in the book of Acts. In fact, as we read it together, you will notice that some of the things Jesus warns about in this passage clearly don't happen in Matthew chapter 11 and chapter 12 before the disciples return. They are clearly overreaching beyond the pages of the gospel and into the rest of the New Testament and even today. And what I want you to notice as we read this passage is that, uh, that hostility is assumed. In other words, to answer that question, what is the posture of a church in a hostile world? We don't have to dig through our Bibles and find the passage that says, in case of emergencies, break glass. Right? This is page one of the plan. Okay? So I want to read at length of this passage, and then I want to just dial in on the metaphor that Jesus uses right in the middle. So let's look at verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, 
For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master the house of Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Let's pray. Father, if we want to think about hostility in our own context, we can recognize, surely, the just innate hostility that comes with the gospel. I think of your parable of the seed that falls on different soils. And so there's the hard soil and the soil among the rocks and the soil that is, uh, that is dried out. Um, and then there is the good soil. And so there is a natural heart-bound resistance to your gospel. But there's also a deeper hostility. And if we were to classify ourselves as the modern American church, we would have to recognize your words to one of the churches in Revelation when you say you've not resisted yet to the point of bleeding. And yet we think of our brothers and sisters across the world and across history, Lord, and this hostility is evident and visible. In fact, we know, Lord, that in the last century, more people died for the name of Jesus than all the centuries that precede it combined. And so we pray as we look at this, Lord, that you would help us to understand this morning exactly what our posture should be in the world where we find ourselves, even when the stakes are high and the times are difficult and it demands great sacrifice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. He sends them out to do what he has done, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to go from town to town, and he spends a long time, doesn't he, warning them about the difficulty that is impending. I want to draw your attention to, the, to uh, his picture language in verse 16 this morning. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I think there's a danger in reading this passage as being some sort of a circumstantial warning. Like, I'm sorry about this, but this is going to be rough. I think there's a tendency to even read this as if Jesus was saying, I wish things were different, but this is how it's got to be. I think there's a tendency to read it as if Jesus is talking about an external circumstance and not an intentional plan. But I would suggest to you that this is an intentional plan. And unfortunately, if we had to describe what the plan is, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. How would we describe it? How would we answer that question? What is the posture of the church? The posture is vulnerable. And again, I want you to understand this morning that that vulnerability is not just a risk, it is the plan. It has a purpose. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it, here that Jesus uses the language of sheep? This is common language for Jesus. He uses a lot. In fact, what did he tell them just a few verses earlier? I'm sending you to the lost sheep of Israel. 
It says earlier in Matthew that he looked out over the crowds and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Later in Matthew chapter 25, he tells a parable of a king at the end of time who separates people into two categories as sheep and as goats. And most significantly, it is one of the primary images that the gospel writers to use to identify Jesus himself. In fact, this gets even stronger if we were to look at Luke's version of this passage in Luke chapter 10, when he says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Which, by the way, seems like an escalation of vulnerability, doesn't it? I mean, not that a sheep has anything it can do in a pack of wolves, but a lamb even less so. But remember in John, in John's gospel, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In fact, if we had to pick a book that emphasizes the hostility of the world around us, we would easily pick the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, there's an occasion in, John, or in Revelation chapter 5 where John is looking and there's a scroll that contains the fate of the world protected by seven seals and he's weeping because no one is found worthy to open the scroll. And the angel nudges him in the ribs and he says, but look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John raises his eyes and he doesn't see a lion, but he sees one, a lamb, as though he had been slain. The one who is worthy to open the scrolls is the lamb that was slain. And so it makes sense that if that lamb is our master and we are his disciples, if that lamb is our teacher and that we are his students, that we would also follow in his footsteps. But as we look at this this morning, I want to draw out a few different layers, if you will, of vulnerability and help us to think through this. The first one is a vulnerability of presence. Look again at verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Notice it doesn't say in the vicinity of wolves, right? The language here, in the midst, or maybe your translation says as sheep among wolves, right? It's not merely sending the disciples into an area where hostility may be present. It's into, if you will, the belly of the beast. Clearly, if we are to be obedient to Jesus' sending, as we see here this morning, we have to go where the wolves are. It's implied, right? He doesn't say where there may be, or where there might be, or where there could be. He says, into the very midst of the wolves I am sending you. That's an incredible vulnerability. In fact, it seems like a strategic mistake. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. The danger for us, we would think, is, is the hostility. And to follow Jesus Christ, to be obedient to his ways, to proclaim his gospel, all, all, often provokes all sorts of hostility. And there is a common response right now, which is to retreat, to back out, to avoid, to cloister. In fact, you may have read Rod Dreyer's very good book a couple of years ago called The Benedict Option. And what he argued was that American culture was basically on fire and was going to burn, and so the best thing the church could do is to retreat to the wilderness, like Benedict and his monastic order in the fourth century, watch Rome burn, and still be around and alive after everything was done. 
Now, again, there is some wisdom in his book. One of the things he recognizes is that the culture out there is also the culture in here. And so his concern is not so much the safety of the church as it is the unique nature of the church. In other words, he's afraid not that we would lose our lives, but if you would, we would lose our souls. Okay? That we, as the church, would no longer be the church. Okay? And I think there is some wisdom and some goodness there but notice Jesus doesn't say, I'm sending you out as sheep, so find a safe place in the wilderness. The differences and the fragmentation of our American culture means that hostility is not something that's just unique to Christians. We just live in a hostile world of continuous us versus them. But because of that reason, Christianity is becoming more and more a minority view on almost every issue, and things are getting hot. I know teachers who in the last few years have retired early because public schools seemed like a place where they could no longer be who they were, maintain their own conscience, speak, uh, speak freely about what they believe. I know entire industries that we have collectively as Christians written off and given, if you will, to the dogs and backed out of for safer and more obvious, uh, more obvious pathways. But the plan here is to be in the midst of wolves, to go where the hostility is. And I would suggest it's for two reasons. One is because that is the mission of Jesus Christ. In fact, remember that before we were Christians, we were also part of that hostile world. The language that Paul uses is that while we were the very enemies of God, Christ died for us. In fact, we see this in Jesus's life as well as his death. It is clearly a life and a death of vulnerability. Think of all of the occasions that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. In fact, we'll talk more about that in the midst, but the plan, if you will, is not to find the good people or the worthy people or the safe people and proclaim the gospel. The gospel itself is confrontational. It says Jesus is king and you are not. And that's incredibly good news, but it's not always easy to receive with joy. It's costly. Okay? And so hostility is the plan. I'll quote from Miroslav Volf later. He was a Croatian who was uh, uh, wrestling with the genocide of his own people in the Balkan genocide and trying to apply the forgiveness that Jesus both demonstrated and calls us to in his own life, in his own nation where there was such hatred and difficulty and destruction. And one of the things that Miroslav Volf does in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, is he uses the image of a hug, and specifically a hug of reconciliation, to demonstrate what we're talking about this morning. Okay? If somebody has hurt you, if somebody has harmed you, if somebody is hostile to you, this is a strange posture to take, is it not? Okay? It's not this posture. It's incredibly vulnerable. But reconciliation and forgiveness is inherently sticking your neck out. It is inherently on behalf of someone who does not have your best interest in mind. And that, again, is what we see demonstrated consistently in Jesus Christ, and it's what we see here. 
Now notice he says, I'm sending you out in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Recognizing that the plan is to go where the wolves are is not a call for naivety. Some of you may remember in the early ages of the internet, a video where a World of Warcraft group is about to take on a raid and there's a character named Leroy Jenkins and they're talking through their plans and before they get done, Leroy just goes running into the dungeon shouting his own name and dies and everybody dies with him. This is also a form of Christian supposed faithfulness that we need to ignore. Recognizing that Jesus sends us out vulnerable doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't send us out equipped. And remember, the disciples here are being sent out. At best, this isn't their opening exam, but their midterm. Right? They have been with Jesus. They have walked with Jesus. They have seen what Jesus is doing. So we need to be wise as serpents and yet innocent as doves. Now that's striking language. Okay? Wise as serpents is just as intentional as sheep among wolves, but that sounds like we should behave like the other team. Right? A serpent, if, if a sheep is a constant and consistent image in Scripture, how much more the serpent? Right? In fact, if you read Genesis 3, what is the only characteristic we are given about the sudden appearance of this serpent? That he was more wise or more shrewd or more cunning than all the other animals. Okay. And so there's a recognition and a need for wisdom, we go, and we go vulnerably, but we go with preparation, we go with wisdom, we go with creativity. But nonetheless, we are sheep in the midst of wolves. But I don't think we've exhausted the vulnerability there. Jesus here isn't just laying out a paradigm of vulnerability because we're going to be in a place that is dangerous. It's also a vulnerability of method. Notice what he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay. Now, he could just say, Behold, I'm sending you out in the midst of wolves, and that would have an idea of hostility and danger and vulnerability in and of itself. When we say, I'm sending you out as sheep, that increases the vulnerability, but it's a vulnerability of very nature. Okay. In other words, here he doesn't just describe the church as going and maintaining a posture that is defenseless, but attackless, right? The idea here is not, I'm sending you out as sheep against wolves, which is a silly image in and of itself, but just in the midst of wolves, okay? There is a character or a methodology that Jesus is pointing to here. It's not an us versus them mentality, nor is it a hostile mentality. In fact, if we were to give the first answer, what is the posture of the church to be in a hostile world? Vulnerability is the first answer. If we were to give the second answer, we would say not hostile. And this is a problem in our times. With the rest of the world, the American church has been caught up in the hostility of social media, for example. Okay, of a severe us versus them mentality, and yet when we think of a sheep, we don't think of a hostile sheep. And even if you do, what does he say? Therefore, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Listen, I've watched Hitchcock's The Birds many times. Not once have I spotted a single dove on the screen because it wouldn't bring any amount of fear. Even in large crowds, doves are harmless. They are innocent. There is a character 
difference here. And so at the very least, it means that we are not to be not just wolves dressed like sheep, which is its own problem, right? That's the terrible hypocrisy of our times, that people pretend to be the innocent ones while they take every advantage and speak, you know, uh, every way. But more than that here, we are to be, if you will, sheep through and through. And so as I said earlier, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, this means that we don't respond to wolves in wolf-like fashion. It's not an option. We can't say they started it. We can't appeal to a sense of justice, let alone a sense of vengeance. Instead, Jesus says, pray for the one who hates you. Love the one who persecutes you. If you are struck, turn the other cheek. Okay? And so there is, a, uh, there is an innocence in our reaction to this hostility. And listen, I would say this is a much greater threat in our times right now than retreat. The threat of becoming like a wolf, or if you will, regressing to wolf-like behavior. The threat of standing against the world but behaving exactly like it. The threat of uh, misrepresenting Jesus, who even when he is angry, and even when he is actively making a whip of cords and driving people from the temple for taking advantage of the poor and the foreigner, could never be described as being wolf-like. And more importantly, as it says uh, in the Gospels, as a sheep, and in the book of Isaiah, as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. One of the striking things about Jesus' trial is here we have someone who is totally innocent and yet doesn't seek to defend himself. Okay. And so this is the nature, but I don't think that exhausts it because a sheep is not merely not a wolf, right? If you wrote that on a seventh grade, seventh grade essay, what is a sheep? And you said, well, a sheep's not a wolf, and you're like, done, right? That doesn't get to it. What does it mean then to be a sheep? What is it about a sheep? What is it that we do as sheep? And I would suggest we do sheep stuff. Again, this is a common image throughout the Gospels. Um, and so a good place to start, I would suggest, is just to consider what Jesus says in the parable in Matthew chapter 25 when he makes a division between sheep and goats. Right at the end of time, he divides into two classes, sheep and goats. And how are the sheep defined? Because when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was poor, you took care of my needs. When I was naked, you clothed me. And the sheep standing there ask, and they say, but when did we see you? He says, as much as you did this to the least of these, you did it as unto me. Now, that could sound like a stretch, but remember that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember that we are called to follow in his footsteps. And I would suggest to you that the New Testament consistently emphasizes a single phrase that defines Christian behavior in a hostile world. And that phrase is doing good. Now, I want to take you through the New Testament. I don't want to just tell you that this is what the Bible says. I want to show you 
that this is what the Bible says. And so let's just consider this morning Acts 10.38, which describes Jesus' entire ministry in this way, that Jesus went about doing good. Or let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Now, in each place, I want you to not just spot the concept of good, but I want you to notice the context of good. It is sheep in the midst of wolves. And so notice what it says here in Romans 12, starting here in verse... Let's start in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Sheep stuff. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sheep stuff. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, all of that has to do with reaction. All of that has to do with response to poor treatment. But listen to verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. Let's look at another one. This one in Galatians chapter 6. Let's look at verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. He just defines the whole thing. What are we to be doing? We're to be doing good to everyone. Okay, let's look at Titus. Titus chapter 3. Again, I want to give you the whole context, so I want to read the first eight verses here. Remind them, that is the church that Titus is overseeing, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Listen to verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. 
So not hostile, but because we were saved by the goodness of God, devoted to good works. Let's look at one more here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see what? Your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, so getting back to behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What have we learned? We have learned that the church is to be in the world, in the fullest and completest sense, in every industry, in every country, in every culture, in every tribe, we are to be present, recognizing that hostility is part of that presence. And then second, we are to be different in our presence. Not hate for hate, not hostility for hostility, and not merely avoiding repaying in kind, but actually proactively, carefully, and devotedly pursuing good for the same world that may hate us or stand against us with these types of things. Now at that point, I could have hit this message from a ton of places in the New Testament. When Jesus says we are to be the light of the world, the implication is that the light needs to be where the darkness is, right? And the implication also is that the light needs to be light and not darkness. In the same way, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But where does the salt do its work? Where there's a danger or a tendency towards corruption, right? Salt in a jar doesn't do anything. Salt on a piece of meat preserves. But in the same way, the salt has to be salty to do that work. Or to use a classic preacherism, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. But when we look at this passage here, it adds a layer that I think gets neglected in those other places, which is vulnerability. When we think of light in the midst of darkness, we don't think of vulnerability. In fact, it can be a posture of triumphalism. We are the light. Right? Even Star Wars recognizes that that's the right team to play for. In the same way, in the world but not of the world can be a posture of superiority, self-righteousness. But sheep in the midst of wolves, that's not badge of honor protocol, is it? There's an emphasis and a recognition built into this metaphor that is easy to forget, which again is that vulnerability is the plan. So we've looked at a vulnerability of presence. Where is the church to be? Right in the midst of hostility. We've looked at a vulnerability of method, that we're to be in that world but be different from that world in a way that does not respond in kind and seeks the good of that same world. But there's a third vulnerability here, and it's one that Jesus doesn't say, and it's probably because he doesn't have to, and that's the vulnerability of outcome. What is it that we expect to be the solution to the equation of sheep plus many wolves equals death. Very clearly, death. This is not a perceived vulnerability. Okay? 
It's not a hologram church that is projected to look like it's in danger, but it's actually safe the whole time. It's not Jesus saying, I send you out in the midst of wolves, but I'll be sitting over the hill with a panzer take, you'll be fine, right? It is true vulnerability. And we see that as we read in Matthew chapter 10. What does he say is going to happen? They will be persecuted. They will be maligned. They will be chased out of town. They will be arrested. They will be beat up. Families will be divided. They will be disowned and they will be killed. Sheep in the midst of wolves assumes an outcome of vulnerability. This is why Paul says in Romans, why is it, chapter 8, that we like sheep are being led to the slaughter all the day long? Vulnerability is the plan. And again, in our culture, it may not lead in this day, in this age, to death. But it does lead to exclusion. It does lead to being fired. In fact, I would suggest that this is the way it's supposed to work. We're to avoid the paradigm that says, I'm not going to go there because they don't want me, but recognizes when we get there, they might send us away. That puts ourselves into positions in every industry, in every family, in every city block that recognizes we can't just say, well, before they fire me, I'm going to quit. That presumes that we understand that following Jesus comes with a cost. In fact, how does Jesus describe what it looks like to follow him? If anyone seeks to follow me, let him take up his cross daily, deny himself, and follow me. This vulnerability of outcome is a cost that needs to be weighed, and it's one of the things that I love about Jesus, is he never keeps the cost close to his chest. He's honest. He tells what's going to happen. But we need to also recognize here that this vulnerability of outcome is part of the plan. I think because we're so used to warfare language and because of these things, we see the sheep in the midst of wolves here or we see the cost of this or we see even martyrdom as being just, you know, just like in war, those who lose so others may survive and flourish. I think that's a mistake. I think that's a misunderstanding. Again, I think this vulnerability is not just circumstantial, but paradigmatic. It's part of the plan. Now, I want to read to you this quote from Miroslav Volf. And due to a lack of preparation, I'm going to read it to you off my laptop. One of my favorite things to do when I teach in other places is throw away my notes. It's like a completionist mentality. It's a ritual of, oh, that's behind me. But I probably could have used them today. All that was in them, though, however, was this quote. This, again, is from Miroslav Volf. And I want you to to think both about uh, the world that we live in, and I also want you to think about the behavior and the orientation of the church in the past couple of years right in our area, in our country, and in our time. This is what he says. In a world whose order rests on violence, we instinctively grasp for the resurrected Messiah, who was given all power in heaven and on earth. Not that we find no use for the crucified one. We only insist on a clear division of labor between the crucified one and the resurrected one. The crucified Messiah is good for the inner world of our souls, tormented by guilt and abandonment. 
He is the Savior who dies in our place to take away our sins and liberate our conscience. He is the fellow sufferer who holds our hands as we walk through the valley of tears. But for the outer world of our embodied selves, where interests clash with interest and power crosses sword with power, we feel the need of a different kind of Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who will make our wills unbending, our arms strong, our swords sharp. Superimposed on the image of the helpless Messiah hanging on the cross is the image of the victorious rider on the white horse, his eyes like flame of fire and his robe dipped in blood, coming to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. We will believe in the crucified, but we want to march with the rider. Now, biblically, Jesus has been appointed judge of the world, and that judgment will come. When we talk about the, the rider on the white horse who will come and set things right, that is something Jesus will, future tense, do. But it is not yet that time. The time now is the time to be as Jesus was. In fact, let me show you just two places in the New Testament. First one is Romans chapter 8. Because this vulnerability of outcome can make us uncomfortable because there is this low-grade prosperity gospel that runs through all of the American church. The high-grade version says God wants you to have wealth and health and everything, and if you just believe enough, everything will be fine. The low view is still a view of victory, of a life without struggle against sin and a life of struggle against struggle of opposition. It is where Jesus gets bundled up and packaged and sold with the American dream as if it's a perfect fit. But I want you to listen to what it says here. Okay. So in Romans 8, Paul uses this language. He says, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Okay. The Bible's not afraid of war language. It uses it. More than conquerors implies victory. No problem there. But I want you to listen to what that victory looks like. He says in the verse before us, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's a victory that looks like failure. It's a triumph that looks like defeat. There is resurrection, there is life, but there is also death, and that death is not a facade. In fact, notice what Paul says here in Colossians about Jesus' own victory. Listen to what he says here in chapter 2. It says that Jesus triumphed by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus here triumphs. He disarms the powers and principalities. 
and he puts them to open shame. When? When he raises from the grave? When? When he stands at the end of the time and judges and is finally vindicated and validated as God's chosen Messiah? No, in the cross itself. It is in the cross that Jesus triumphed over the powers and principalities. It's in the cross that he showed them to be what they truly are, nothing more and nothing less. It is in the cross that he took the self-righteous Roman Empire that was the only holder of justice and showed it to be as self-interested as well as malleable to other voices and powers for their own interest. That's when he triumphed, disarmed the powers and principalities. So why sheep in the midst of wolves? I would suggest it's for two reasons. One, it is because this type of exclusion, this type of exile, this type of failure, this type of defeat, and even this type of death visibly makes manifest the gospel itself. Remember that it is when Jesus is hanging on a cross and he prays for those who put him there, Father, forgive them, that the Roman centurion, no dog in the race of Jewish Messiah, says, surely this man was the Son of God. Right? That's the epiphany. That's where it happens. That's the revelation. In other words, when we love our enemies, even to the point of death, we point to God's loving death on our behalf. We make it visible. At the end of service today, we'll partake of communion, where we take the bread and the cup, and we will physically represent, symbolically, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I would suggest that when we bear the shame and even the harm in our own bodies of our enemies, we also physically and symbolically represent Jesus' death. This is why Paul says really weird things like, I bear in my body the stigmata of Christ. That's what he says in Galatians. Or even when he tells the Colossians that he is filling up in his own body the suffering that was lacking in Jesus Christ. There's a reverberation of the cross. None of us will die for the sins of the world. But when we die freely and lovingly and forgivingly, we point to the one who did. The second thing is, when we suffer in this way, it validates the gospel we believe. It demonstrates that we have an unshakable and unfatigable hope that is not just worth dying for, but is not threatened by death. Going back to the Gospel of Matthew, we stopped reading right in the midst of the hostility, but I want you to see the verse where we stopped. Notice what he says in verse 26. So, have no fear of them. Really? He lays out all of this hostility, danger, prosecution, prosecution and persecution, and he says, don't be afraid. He says, for nothing is covered that will be re revealed or hidden that will be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Now pause for a second. That's not a threat. Jesus isn't, you know, looking at his fingernails and going, boy, it'd be a great shame if your life just fell to shambles, right? This isn't a mafia threat to get his will. It's a realistic representation that if you're going to base the decisions in the hot times of life, you should base them realistically on the one who gets the sole vote of your eternal fate. But notice what he says next. 
He says, rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body. And then he says this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. He says, be realistic, but also remember who God is, your loving father who knows and cares about every cost and death. This vulnerability is significant because it validates the gospel. In fact, if you're familiar with, or if you've ever studied or thought about apologetics, the idea of defending the Christian faith to people around us, the key verse for that in the New Testament is always from 1 Peter. It says that we should be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that lies within us, but to do so with gentleness and respect. Do you know the context of that statement? Do you know the setting? Go ahead and turn to... First Peter, and we'll finish here. Now, actually, all of the things we've hit this morning you could find by reading closely through First Peter 2, 3, and 4. Suffering as a Christian is a primary theme of First Peter. But I want to pick up here in verse 9. Tell me if this sounds familiar. This is the third time this morning I've read somewhere else in the New Testament and we've just quoted the words of Jesus. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now listen. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks to you a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect. When is it people ask? When is it that they go, wait, what is it you believe anyways? It's when we do good and suffer for it and do so without reviling and do so without retreating and do so in a way that leaves us vulnerable and loving our enemies. Again, that validates the gospel. It shows that we are in language of John, not of this world, because we follow God's provision, the lamb that was slain, and yet when you read Revelation, it's the lamb that was slain that wears the crown. When you read Revelation, it's the lamb that was slain that is not just the savior of our sins internally, as Wolf says, but the model of our engagement with the world that we've been called to. Father, I can only imagine that everyone else in this room, Christian or not, just has flashes and reflections of words and actions found in the mouth of so-called Christians in the past few years. It doesn't look like sheep in the midst of wolves. And if we're honest and we look at our own life, we find ourselves caught up in this same culture of hostility, swift to come to our own defense 
swift to think that we need to um, fix the world by any means necessary to justify ourselves and our behavior. And yet you've called us to follow in a different way because it is the way by which you saved us. Not, as Paul says in Titus, because of the good works we've done, but because of your own mercy. For as Paul tells us in Romans, while we were still the enemies of God, you died for us. I pray, Lord, for a posture shift in our own hearts, one that neither retreats nor regresses nor becomes self-protective, but is devoted to doing good, committed to representing Jesus, to the way of the Lamb in a world of wolves. We just ask, God, that you would do this work in our hearts, in the hearts of our friends and our family who know you, in the hearts of the church. We pray for great repentance. As Paul says, judgment must begin at the house of God. Repentance must begin here. And there is much in our world that does not rightly represent you and has hidden the good news of the gospel from the view of a world who desperately needs it. And so we pray, Lord, that you would make us light and that you would make us salt and that you would make us sheep. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond now with our worship and just praise the one who paid our debts.